Hello, everybody. Welcome, and thank you for coming along to this special presentation of The Wound Doctors, a podcast series brought to you by Convitec. My name is Rod Murray, and I'm joined today, as I always am, by my co-host, Dr. Fran Henshaw, who I will introduce in just a moment. But first, to today's topic. Now, as most of you already know, tomorrow is Stop Pressure Injury Day worldwide, and today's discussion is about the relationship between pressure injuries and frailty. Now, frailty is a word that conjures up an image for most of it, but it is difficult to put a finger on exactly what it might look like. In fact, Professor of Health Policy and Management at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University, Dr. John W. Rowe, once likened frailty to pornography. Frailty is hard to define, he said, but you know it when you see it. To explore this topic further, we've got some expert guests assembled. And Dr. Fran Henshaw, I'll hand it over to you now to do the introductions. Thanks very much, Rod. I have to say, I never thought we'd be talking about pornography <laughs> on uh, The Wound Doctors, but you get that on the big jobs. Um, so we've got two stellar guests today, um, and both of these people have first-hand experience of the misery of pressure injuries. But fortunately for our viewers, today is not about doom and gloom. We're actually going to take a proactive look at pressure injury prevention. And here to help us learn how to prevent pressure injuries is um, the first of our panellists, Dr. Mark Hohenberg. So Mark is an academic geriatrician and he specialises in perioperative and community geriatric medicine. Clinically, he has a strong interest in furthering integrated care in geriatric medicine. He also has an interest at the intersection with technology in healthcare, including novel adaptive technologies to mitigate frailty and to improve quality of life. And this is something we've touched on on the Wound Doctors podcasts, actually. And I remember a few weeks back, we had uh, Professor Bija Najafi, who was from the Wounds Australia conference, talking about mitigating frailty by actually monitoring people. So maybe this is something that we'll get into our discussion later. Um, the other panellist we have, I'm going to introduce her now, but I think she's um, stuck behind some firewall somewhere. So hopefully Margot will make her way through, but I'm sure a lot of our uh, viewers will already be familiar with Margot Asimus. She was registered as the first wound management nurse practitioner in Australia in 2004, and she has over 25 years of, of experience in this speciality. Margot has been the recipient of national awards. She has presented extensively across Australia and internationally and is a recognised author and leader in the field of wounds. The reason we really want to talk to Margot today as well is because she led a successful pressure injury prevention programme involving a multidisciplinary team of nursing, allied health and senior health service managers in regional Australia. So it'll be very good to get her perspective. So just to clarify, a pressure injury can be defined as a localized damage to the skin and or underlying tissue as a result of pressure, shear or a bit of both. And there's some great guidelines available to help assess and manage these wounds. Um, but today we're really here to talk about why certain people are vulnerable to pressure injuries and what we can do about it. So, Mark, my first question to you, because you're all I've got right now, um, it's often elderly people who are described as frail um, who get pressure injuries. Can you help us to understand what frailty is and how does it lead to wounds? 
Absolutely. So, um, so Fran, then everybody, frailty essentially is a concept of a loss of robustness as we get older. So a lot of people can understand the concept of frailty because people may lose a lot of abilities as we get a bit older, but it goes a bit deeper than that as well. One of the big things we see when we talk about frailty is um, one of the things that's often seen in aged care facilities is a loss of strength, a loss of ability to do things. And there's a very good um essentially a clinical tool that is used worldwide that was produced by a chap called um, Professor Kenneth Rockwood out of Nova Scotia in Canada. And it uses a scale from one through to nine, although realistically it's only one through to eight for people with frailty. Um, on how frailty can affect them in their day-to-day life. And really scales one to three define people like many of us who are listening to the webinar today, that we're robust, we're active, we're able to do everything that we need to for ourselves. We don't have any major disease problems. And if we do have any disease issues, they aren't causing any impact in our day-to-day life. As frailty can potentially progress, it starts to impact people more and more thereby. And initially the first thing that people describe is feeling slow or feeling tired during the day, which is one of the commonest complaints And in fact, when I actually show people the Kenneth Rockwood clinical frailty scale, as it's known, um, it often when I say that they say, oh, my goodness, yes, that's me. That's what I've been feeling for years. And that often is one of the first signs, as I say, that people are getting signs of frailty. Over stages four to six, um, their ability to do things will be impacted more and more like their ability to get up and manage their domestic duties at home, either managing things outside initially, but then starting to um, have problems with cooking, with cleaning, etc. And over time at stage six, it starts to impact their ability to do personal care and do tasks of hygiene um, and potentially toileting and sometimes eating. By the time we get to stage seven, stage seven implies that somebody's needing care and assistance for every single aspect of their day-to-day life, what we call their instrumental ADLs. And most often the time that will be delivered in nursing homes. But even so, at that stage, they are not a major risk of death at that stage, although they may be declining week on week, month on month and year on year. But by stage eight, and stage eight is a very important um, stage to diagnose for people and to recognize, because what that means is that if somebody gets an illness such as a pneumonia, a urinary tract infection, um, a set of wounds, for example, it usually means they're not going to be able to recover from that illness. And they'll probably continue with that illness and it will slowly deteriorate over a period of time. And they may get other problems on top of that. And what that actually shows, and usually in association with some weight loss as well, is that they're probably in the last six months of life at that point. And as I say, that's very important to recognize because without that, you can end up over-treating somebody. And in the context of wounds as well, it also means that the wounds are incredibly unlikely to be healed at that point. So what is frailty? Frailty essentially is a syndrome that causes a loss of robustness, both from the physical aspect, but it can also affect cognition and it can also affect skin integrity. And within the context of what we're talking about here, frailty actually stops people from being able to heal skin properly. And that may be due to a whole manifest number of different issues, um, ranging from malnutrition due to nutritional insufficiency, particularly with certain micronutrients. Um, As we all know, collagen is the um, scaffolding of skin. And to manufacture collagen effectively, you need a combination of both vitamin C, zinc, and the degree of arginine as well, one of the um, essential amino acids. And without those, you're not going to be able to heal the skin properly. So malnutrition and um, frailty often go hand in hand, and you won't be able to heal skin correctly unless you address some of these things. Does that answer your question? Okay, Oh, that's a brilliant answer. And I'm really glad that you've touched on this nutrition thing, because I have to say, you know, I've been in the world of wounds for over 20 years. And I reckon that is a bit of a blind spot that 
that I've had for a lot of it. I'm so busy poking around with people's wounds, trying to figure out how to fix them that you might not actually realize that the, the, the body doesn't have the reserves to, you know, as you say, make the collagen. So I think that's a point really well made. And I think, you know, this frailty scale is a really good predictor of wound healing by the sounds of things. So, so thanks for that, Mark. Indeed. Mark, just quickly before I come to Margo, I've got a question for Margo, but that was a pretty comprehensive scale you laid out there. Are we past Dr. Rowe's prediction that frailty was like pornography? You couldn't really define it, but you knew it when you saw it. Have we gone beyond that perhaps by the sound of it? Look, it's a tremendously good question, Rod. I think the big problem that we see is that frailty is not a recognised phenomenon. When people say dementia, communities and people just get it. They know what dementia is. We're scared by it. But actually, frailty is a lot commoner in the community than, than dementia, and it has much more of a burden than morbidity and mortality. So I'm not quite sure we're there yet in terms of the recognition of frailty. The two major scales in the world are the Rockwood Clinical Frailty Scale, which is used a lot less in Australia than the other one, which is used... Um, in more in research, which is Linda Freed's frailty scale, which is more objectively measurable and gives you a score from one to five. Um, but having said that, I think it probably is a bit like pornography. A lot of people in the healthcare sectors will know it when they see it. We know when somebody is frail. We've all seen the picture of the queen, the last picture that was taken as she was... Um, um, when she was standing up. But actually, from what I understand from um, conversations with colleagues back in the UK is that she was using a walker, that she wasn't walking well at that point, she wasn't mobilising properly. And it's a good example of somebody that the Queen potentially passed away from frailty. We will define that she passed of old age and we will ultimately never know. But she certainly was frail towards the end. And I think we could all recognise that we all knew she was frail, but we didn't call it frailty. And there, of course, is somebody who's had the best possible medical care for her whole life. So we might touch on some of those things and how they relate to frailty as we go. Margot, thanks for joining us. Apologies you had some problems getting in, but it's terrific of you uh, to be here with us. At a local level, we talk about frailty. How does the skin become frail and how does this make it so vulnerable to pressure injuries? Yeah, thank you, Rod. Um, well, I think we have to consider, and I take the point about nutrition, but what we often see in our elderly patients is dehydration and people not drinking enough fluid. So if we don't have the heart getting enough circulating volume around to perfuse the skin, that can be hypoperfusion. So we can see that the skin isn't perfused so well and not getting food, water and oxygen to the skin can certainly cause a delay in healing. But as people get older, the skin tends to dry out. We have this protective barrier of the acid mantle on the skin, which stops bacteria from entering. As people get older, as mentioned, the collagen fibres decrease, the adipose tissue reduces, skin gets thin, a little bump, and we may easily have a wound, especially if that skin is dry. So the ability for the skin to maintain moisture is lost or declining. So dry skin is the enemy. Question for both of you, perhaps you first, Mark, I'm not sure, but am I doing things now? that are going to lead me to frailty later in life? Is it preventable or can we take actions to mitigate the effects of frailty later in life? Not sure who's best positioned to answer that, but it's an intriguing question, I would think. Well, if I talk about Australian skin, uh, in some damaged skin of lots of our patients that we see with wounds, 
certainly what they've done when they've been young and going to the beach and working out in the sun unprotected, we see the uh, signs of that now. And um, it's just accepted in Australia that you'll have removal of lesions and you'll have uh, scale and you'll have problems with skin, yet we need to be preventing damage in our childhood. So no hat, no play, sunscreen, covering up, all those things are important. We are getting better at that too, aren't we, I think? Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> more, more broadly, you don't see kids out in bassinets in the sun all day anymore like you maybe did uh, a generation mm-hmm. or two. I think, I'm sorry, Dr. Friend, I think you had some questions that I've cut right over the top of you because I know nothing, so I'm always intrigued by all of this stuff. Um, not at all, Mark. And I can encourage anyone to place questions in the chat function if they want to. And I do need to remind everybody that whilst this... Um, webinar is being recorded. The only um, thing that will be available afterwards is actually the panellists' audio and um, pictures, so we won't be recording the chat. So please feel free to make any questions or comments. And um, yeah, I'm really interested in this frailty piece. And a question for you, Mark. Um, If there are no drugs for frailty, and I'm not a frailty expert, but I believe that drug therapy is not really available to prevent people. You can't take your anti-frailty pill with your cornflakes in the morning, but it is a precursor to pressure injuries. How can we reverse frailty? So it's a brilliant question and probably one of the greatest questions of geriatric medicine at the moment, alongside trying to answer the questions of how we treat dementia. Um, There is no drugs for frailty. A lot of people have looked into it with all sorts of medications and probably the most useful drug that was looked at and the one that had the greatest potential was potentially testosterone because testosterone can actually promote the development of muscles, as many of you know. But actually, that has never been shown in any research trials, randomized control trials or meta-analyses to actually um, reverse frailty, except for people who have very, very low testosterone due to pituitary problems or testosterone production issues. So you're quite right. There are no drugs for dementia, uh, for frailty. And the problem with that is that a lot of our communities, a lot of our patients will just want to outsource their healthcare and their, um, their medical problems, and their medical management to taking pills. Doctor, give me a pill and that'll fix it. But in this case, there isn't any of that. And the only way that we can reverse frailty is with different forms of exercise. And I think that's really important to help people understand. And um, and Rod, you were talking about what can I do to help prevent frailty? Well, essentially, the big ways that we know that can help prevent frailty are the control of vascular risk factors and maintenance of um, exercise and physical fitness in midlife, particularly as we head into older age. But especially as we get into older age, you can actually reverse frailty. And really, the key areas, I talked about the Rockwood Clinical Frailty Scale. If you're stage four or five, you have a really good opportunity to try and maintain yourself at that stage or reverse it by doing a combination of three different forms of exercise. The first one we're all quite familiar with in terms of doing aerobic exercise, maintenance of fitness, bringing your resting heart rate down, etc. And that for most elderly persons or most older persons, they will be familiar with in terms of doing walking, getting up their heart rate a little bit, trying to get out of breath. Um, Dementia Australia described this as trying to do a minimum period of 30 minutes of exertional exercise where you're getting a bit more out of breath each day if possible, but ultimately more than five days the week. But in managing frailty, the evidence shows that we also need to be including some form of resistance training exercises. That might be doing some sit to stands. It might be doing some squats, other things like that, that can actually improve the strength of our lower legs. And this is best achieved using physiotherapists or exercise physiologists, because obviously 
the muscles need to be appropriately targeted to somebody's ability. And if someone is falling, you're not going to be asking them to be doing deep squats or something where they'll fall over and potentially hurt their pelvis. The last um, aspect of the exercise is actually to do some form of stretching or some form of um, of balance exercise. So the idea is, is to work on the um, any instability and the proprioception. And the best forms of that are considered to be Tai Chi is the best, yoga and other forms of exercise like that. So it's like a holy triad of doing that. And the real challenge here is about how we integrate this into daily life for older persons. If I say to people, we need to try and do more exercise, most people um, are just like, I'd love to do that, but I don't know how, I don't know if I can, and it costs a lot of money. And that's where the integrated health comes in. And that's a much bigger conversation I won't go into today. But I will end on one topic that a story of one of my patients, actually an extended family member on my wife's side, had problems with frailty. I talked to them about the importance of trying to integrate these things into their life. And this person was extraordinarily successful at improving the amount of exercise they did by socializing it with friends. Um, so going on walks with people, they started going to a gym to try and do some targeted exercise. And again, a gym is not usually appropriate for most older persons, but this person ended up going with some other friends and doing little bits themselves in classes and did that. And they took on Tai Chi. And at this stage, um, their initial Rockwood frailty scale was about stage four to five, and they were getting worse relatively quickly. They've turned it around now, and they're now living at home completely independently, going back to a frailty scale of probably two. And they are so well set for their future now and they're cognitively really astute, physically very astute, and with no other major problems. Indeed, their other medical issues have also improved. So it just goes to show how much of these lifestyle changes can make such a big difference. And like Margot said, the dehydration aspect is very, very important too. And with doing all of this exercise as well, it's especially important to maintain the nutrition and the hydration with all of this as well, as well as skin integrity with appropriate emollients. But that's not a major area of my expertise. Oh, that helps. Look, I have to say, Mark, you know, this really is something that we all need to hear because um, I have a <laughs> confession to make. I don't really like exercise. Um, but I the name, Fran. If we stopped calling it exercise and came up with another name that sounded but fun, would be more says, to- Do you want to go for a 10K walk on a Sunday morning? I'm there. Yeah. And so I think what Mark is saying is right. You have to find right ways for people to consume it. Whereas if someone said on a Sunday morning, do you want to go to fitness first? I would run for the hills. So, you know, it's. it's- you got your run in. I was going to say, same effect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think it's really important that we find ways for people to do their exercise that doesn't seem like a chore because otherwise it just becomes you know another lecture from a healthcare professional doesn't it so um yeah a a point well made there um rod margot what do we see at the coalface that's a very encouraging story that mark's just outlined for us there of a patient who's gone from four or five on the scale back to two what do we see at the coalface what's is that a normal sort of a story could that be a normal outcome for more people or is it more complicated than that I think it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, Certainly, move it or lose it is a message that I get from uh, what we were just talking about Mm. and great outcome for a motivated person. And I think it is about in an aged care facility, I, I see the unmotivated and doing the same thing over and over again, you know, having a game of bowls and um, some dance classes and and it is the enthusiasm of the staff that will make the difference to get people motivated to do exercise and certainly if we listen to Fran um, 
we don't want to call it exercise, but we want to call it fun. And if it's routine and uh, uh, we can see patients opting out rather than opting in. So certainly nursing staff aren't part of the exercise regime. More of um, what I have seen that has been successful and more cost-effective has been uh, physical fitness from gym memberships where the gym trainers are coming in and doing exercise and targeting falls prevention and and alike where a bit cheaper than a healthcare professional such as a physio so that we can see more regular use of these trainers in aged care facilities. Yeah, and I think also it is about... Um doing exercise in the way you want to and when I was a jobbing podiatrist back in the day I had a uh, a practice and in the other half of the building was actually um, a day center for elderly people and they all you know did cooking and crosswords and I don't know bits and pieces and then on a Tuesday it was men's day and they're always there like sweeping up leaves and doing the garden and I thought oh, this is slave labor these people are paying to be here and now they're making them you know maintain the place but it turned out that's what guys like doing that was well, you know how they found, found their um day was most fulfilling for them and so these guys would all get together on a Tuesday and sweep leaves dig holes and you know uh, uh I don't know do things with plants. I we don't know much about fun. gardens. We are simple. Yeah. So I think that, you know, it is about finding the right way to do things. So, you know, Margot, we've talked about how we can prevent frailty. What are the simple things that we can do to prevent pressure injuries per se? Yeah. I think that we've got the routine of risk assessment. But I really like hearing about the frailty score because I think if we married that more so with these risk assessments, we're going to come out with the same result, more frail, more risk of pressure injury. We have risk assessment tools such as Norton and Waterloo and Braden, and what they will measure is looking at the person's ability to mobilise and relieve their own pressure. And then if that shows any evidence that it's declining, we're more at risk of pressure injury. Unfortunately, what I am seeing is these risk assessment tools are treated as a tick box and we're not individualising them or the person where, oh, we've got to get that risk assessment done today on admission or um, they're due because they're four weeks of being in the facility. Risk assessment, tick, tick, tick and not individualising the care. Oh, they're already on an alternating mattress, we're fine. However, what happens with that person may be, well, they don't go to bed till later in the evening. They sit in a chair all day. And so we've ignored the fact that that's not their routine and that we need to offload these people in the chair and exercise these people to keep them moving and being able to care. So risk assessment tools are what we do have in place. We need to have policies that are aligned to evidence-based practice and the international guidelines. And Australia is part of that international group that has developed guidelines. There are special groups as well, obese patients, spinal cord injury patients, neonatal intensive care patients 
pressure injuries don't just occur in the elderly. Anyone that is unable to relieve their pressure and move themselves are at high risk of pressure injury. And put that together with some incontinence and uh, lack of perfusion and we've got a uh, setup for a, a pressure injury. Margot, and possibly for you as well, Mark, what role does the patient play in this and what role does mental health and emotions play in it? It's wonderful to know all of these things factually, isn't it, from textbooks and from medicine. We know all the causes and all of those sorts of things. What do you see at the coalface especially, Margot, of how this Mm -hmm. affects people and is the real danger the downward spiral for people once this starts they get depressed, they're less motivated to be like Mark's family member was and go from four back to two, and it sort of feeds itself. And what do we do about that? Yeah, I, look, you're right, Rod, in that we have the experts um, delivering beautiful guidelines to us, and this is best practice, this is what you should do to prevent pressure injury, and we put this in a policy, we try and get policy compliance to reduce the rate of pressure injury. However, we don't individualise it. I'll give an example of I worked for in community health for many years. I looked after a young gentleman that was a spinal cord injury patient. He'd had uh, two years at home, no sign of pressure damage. He went to hospital with a urinary tract infection, spent some time on a trolley in the emergency department, wasn't admitted, uh, treated for his UTI, sent back home. Two days later, he was found to have marks on his skin that looked like cigarette burns. These were deep tissue injury. And consequently, this gentleman of 21 uh, was resigned to the fact that he had to look at his four walls till his pressure injuries healed. 12 months later, not only were we treating still pressure injuries, we were treating mental health of the isolation of a 21-year-old that was isolated to bed rest in his bedroom and not able to get out in the sunshine and see his mates because he couldn't sit on his bottom because of the wounds and that would delay the healing. So that may be best practice, but we've got to look at the whole person and look at, well, what what's the risk management here? How do we risk stratify that if we don't give a bit and be able to get him to have a more quality of life, we're going to lose him to mental health anyway. It's always a terrible conundrum, and this is something that comes up on the wound doctors quite well, frequently, is that, you know, we, we're so, so busy looking at the wound that we often forget um, the devastating mental health effects it has. And there is quite a lot of research that associates wounds with depression. And um, I think, Margot, you've actually quite nicely um, answered one of the questions in the chat, which is, is there an increase in pressure injuries with increased ambulance ramping? So possibly, you know, it sounds like there probably is when people are not getting timely care. We know that pressure injuries and in certain vulnerable people can start very quickly. Would you agree? Certainly would, and it was a case that we had encountered, and and it's a story like that that changes people's practice. Uh, The emergency department staff would never have known about this young gentleman because he'd been treated with his UTI, sent home to the community care, and didn't require a return visit to emergency. So they didn't know the harm that had 
entailed because of the wait time on a trolley. Being able to bring that case back to the emergency staff, share with them what we could have done differently, how could we have prevented this harm. And it was a change of practice to be able to look at surfaces on trolleys and in ambulances to change our practice because we can't get all the medical and nursing staff we need at a, a click. But what we could do was to make sure the surface they were on was safe. Mark, is there other low-hanging fruit? That feels like low-hanging fruit once that's been identified. That's a fairly easy fix for the future. Is there other low-hanging fruit that we know of? Is If that term makes sense, what I'm saying there, of ways to prevent this stuff? Yeah. Oh, sorry, Margot, you go. Uh, I was going to say acknowledge that it exists to start with um, and stop the blame game in that we didn't grow it, we didn't grow it. It is a cost transference between community acute care across to rehab units. It, it is a whole institution that has to work on the change in practice. The devilment of systems, isn't it, Mark? <laughs> no system is perfect and very hard to make systems that really respond well to humans when you've got a big system to cater to a lot of people. I think that's exactly right, Rod. And I think um, um, to Margot's point here, this is what we're talking about with integrated care. And um, I, I won't, I'm not going to go into this in too much detail because I'm actually quite biased because I'm working with a company that's one of the biggest now in terms of developing integrated care here in Australia. Um, but I think the key thing here is about effective communication between different health providers, case conferencing appropriately on how you manage these things. So, for example, if a nurse in an aged care facility has identified a wound, appropriate um, trigger of speaking to the right people in terms of how we manage the hydration to Margot's earlier point, how we manage the malnutrition, how we manage other medical diseases that may be contributing to this, for example, like, for example, heart failure, where we are over-diureasing people, for example, is important. We also asked about um, how do we help prevent frailty in patients at an earlier stage? And ultimately, I think by the time somebody's come to an aged care facility, it's probably impossible to prevent frailty and to stop it from deteriorating. And I think that at that point, it's about managing the frailty, managing risk, um, and hopefully trying to prevent it from deteriorating. Because realistically, functional exercise programs are very difficult in aged care facilities in terms of preventing frailty. The low-hanging fruit that you allude to, Rod, is actually trying to help people understand that if they don't look after their health properly and don't mitigate their risk of frailty at a stage, they will lose independence. They may end up in a nursing home because that's exactly what happens with frailty and that's exactly the message that i use with my patients when i see them in my rooms that like to margo's point earlier um, don't use it and you'll lose it and i think that's a, a really key message from me in terms of um two patients at that earlier stage those who are community dwelling oh mark i think that's really given me the message that i'm not going to complain anymore when i get chased around the park by my trainer on a on a saturday and a monday because it might actually pay some dividends down the track um so Mark, I know that you've just um, opened um, a, a new kind of centre that's going to really help people who've got um, uh, 
problems related to aging. And um, I had a quick look on it on, on the uh, internet the other day, and it's got a wobbly floor. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, um, I'll put it in the chat so everybody can see it if you want to have a look. But as I say, I'm working for this company, so I am a little bit biased in talking about it. So um, the company is called Brella. And essentially what we're trying to do is to promote integrated care and appropriate communication under one roof with health providers to manage things like frailty, to manage dementia, and other problems like that. In my practice as a geriatrician, the biggest problem I have is that whilst I know the information, I can communicate the information effectively to my patients about what they need to do. In practice, they're largely unable to do a lot of these things because the resources and ability to do what we're recommending doesn't exist or they're not able to practically make it work. Like, for example, with exercise at Brella, we're trying to socialize it. We're trying to bring people together from the community to come and do a really easy exercise class together that is appropriate to what they need and then to sit down have a yarn afterwards have a cup of tea have a cup of coffee so we've got our own baristas and everything there that everybody can sit down and have the um have the cup of tea biscuits etc or a bit of fruit as well which we can provide and it's about providing that really nice environment as well as providing the ability for people to actually socialize and an equivalent company in the united states did this as well um called oak street health and they've been incredibly successful not just improving outcomes for patients but demonstrating huge improvements to the local health services um, in terms of outcomes for these patients in um, reducing attendance to the emergency departments, reducing attendances to hospital in some groups by up to 95%, which is how they're funded in the States because the private health providers will actually pay companies in the States to provide services like this to keep them out of hospitals. In Australia, it's obviously very different with our systems, but it's about trying to provide effective solutions to people to help them understand how they can look after the health. And that that's really what Brella is. And the wobbly floors, well, what they do is actually help people understand um, what will happen when they're falling. And we have falls prevention areas and even teaching people how to stand up after a fall as well, how you manage um, potential injuries and how you can develop solutions for that. So it's exciting and will slowly develop like everything develops. Um, but um, I think the key thing here is about trying to enable people, give them the tools that they need to support themselves. That's the key message of what we try and do. I think just doing exercise and then getting biscuits is a fantastic <laughs> exactly. idea because I'll do anything for a Kingston. Car carrot and stick approach. I can't help but have this mental image, Mark, of you almost marine training for the elderly and frail. <laughs> You're teaching them how to fall and roll and leap back up and be ready to go again. But so Falling it, under those nets. That's right. We kind of make <laughs> of it. But uh, as you said to us the other day when we had a bit of a pre-meeting about this, that's really sort of important stuff. There's a question in the chat that I – this is right in my wheelhouse. Technology, Margot. What role does technology have to play? The phone has changed the world. Once it connected to the internet, the world changed irre irreversibly. Is mm. there, are there technologies? And what we spoke to Bijan Najafi was amazing, some of the things he was talking about in terms of technology, including with frailty, socks that would have transmitters that could talk to smart watches and phones and send messages to healthcare professionals outside to say there might be a problem developing here. Are we seeing any of that yet or are we just at the start of that? I think we're at the start of it here in Australia in that my my fear though, Rod, is that it'll be like the the call buzzer in that you've got this phone that's going off at you every five minutes with its incontinence round, its um, pressure injury round, its medication round, its mealtime round. And, and so we've got these alarms built in that will set off to individualise patients. And does it get to the point that <laughs> the healthcare worker 
will switch off to that. Um, one of the things I've read recently is if just to uh, the basic care really, really well, um, that would be ideal. That's yeah. the starting point. Rather than looking for technology to trigger the basic care really well. Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of dimensions to this because I think what you're saying is right. If we turn our nurses just into task orientated beings that do a job when they're beeped at by a machine, that's probably going to unskill them. But Mark, I know you're a bit of a techie geek and I'm sure you've got a set of Oculus knocking around at home and things like that. Um, is there anything that we can actually, you know, give our, our patients to actually, you know, help them along with um, maintaining their robustness, as you say? Absolutely. And look, this is a whole talk in itself. Um, so I'm not going to go, I'm not going to deep dive into this, but um, the technologies that are available around at the moment, everything from the Ura ring through to the Apple Watch to the Fitbits, et cetera, they actually provide a lot of um, background and feedback data to patients. So they can actually see their own biometric data. So as they're getting fitter, you should be able to see your resting heart rate come down, for example, as long as you're not drinking a lot of alcohol as well, which is going to keep it up overnight. Um, and other metrics like that as well. So Apple Health actually has a metric that tells you what your cardiovascular fitness is and whether you're um, appropriate for your age, um, which is also very helpful. But a lot of this data is also very helpful um, in the gym. And one of the things that Brella are looking at um, in the future, we haven't started this yet, but it will be a major research um, target for us, is that if you look at Manchester United, I hate them, I'm Chelsea, <laughs> but if you look at other major Premier League football clubs, Australian um, Rugby League, for example, they actually have a lot of data that's collected from players during games and when they're training. Now, with this data that's collected overnight when they're coming into the um, facilities, they will actually know straight away whether a player is going to be training at their peak or whether they're sick, whether they shouldn't be training at their peak. The same thing can be applied. We have that sort of data for elderly patients coming into um, somewhere like Brella, because it means we can actually target what we're going to be doing for them. So, for example, if they're not very well, then perhaps we shouldn't be focusing on doing a lot of the cardiovascular work. They might want to be doing a lot more of the resistance training, etc. If they're not sleeping particularly well, then we can have personalized data that can say, well, perhaps maybe we should be focusing on things that might be able to help augment sleep at nighttime. So this is the whole phenomenon of that we're producing this mountain of data for individuals at the moment. And with that data comes enormous opportunities. We don't necessarily know how we can use it yet there's all the privacy issues with around that as well that obviously many of us are very rightly worried about who owns that data i'm a firm believer the person owns the data so if margot was to come to something like this or if you were to come to something like this fran you would own that data and you would share it with the appropriate people that you wish to share it with and i hope the world goes in that direction um, but i think in answer to your question there is a lot of technology out there and it can be used at the moment for the right people i don't think it's a one a one size fits all approach though I think also there's going to be this amazing emerging technology, this kind of personalized care approach where that we might be able to understand um, what's happening to people's skin before it breaks down. So I remember being in, on sabbatical in the UK a few years ago and we were testing various pressure injury prevention mattresses. And one of the things we would do is look at um, inflammatory markers. So things like um, interleukins and these can tell you if a skin is vulnerable, but you have to take this thing, you have to trot it off to a lab and you might get your result a couple of weeks later. Um, but obviously, if this could be um, translated to something at point of care or there's other things like lactate that 
pH that are possible markers, then I think downstream we might be able to actually head these things off the part at the pass by actually understanding which parts of the body are vulnerable and how vulnerable they are. So I think there's this, you know, really broad spectrum from the kind of techie um, electronics and wearables through to the lab tests that can be made simple and, and available at point of care. Um, I know there's been some early work done with point of care ultrasound, which um, has not yet um, really reaped much in the way of results but I'm sure that's something else that it would be very good to be able to look at skin so no I mean that's a really interesting area to me and I think it is something that we'll revisit at some point and and we'd love to talk more about it now the first question that um popped up today was from um somebody who's asking is debridement still recommended in necrotic pressure injury wounds um I think that's a very good question for you Margot yeah um thank you for that one uh, the first que question I would have around a necrotic wound, is it healable? Does it have a blood supply? Is there perfusion? And if we look at a heal with a necrotic uh, cap on it, if there's no collection underneath, it's not boggy, we want to seal that on. And we'll paint that with iodine daily and dry that out. And the reason we do that, we don't want to hydrate it and try and remove it, we're protecting that wound from infection. You know that microorganisms need to be in moisture to replicate. If you dry this out, put it as a necrotic cap, elevate it, keep it off the bed, you're more likely to have a better outcome. If you've got a wound that you do not have enough perfusion for, there's no uh, surgical intervention going to be happening anytime soon again you want to dry that wound out if you've got some collection or it's um, moist in areas there is no other option but to remove that necrosis and that could be a team approach if you don't know how far this wound extends and the depth you may want to be working with an orthopedic surgeon especially over the heel area and if you've got osteomyelitis involved you'll be looking to work with an infectious disease physician to get that necrosis off in a surgical procedure and possibly negative pressure after that. Yeah so I mean those are very complicated types of wounds and I, I am mindful of the time we've only really got one minute to go and I think that you know what's been really um, a highlight for me today is the fact that We've not just banged on about the usual suspects of, you know, you need to turn people over because all that information is very freely available. I think we've really got to the nuts and bolts of the problem, which is we need to maintain people's robustness. When we're conducting these assessments, we need to actually use these results to inform a management plan and not just to get ticked into a, a chart to say that you've done what you ought to do. And I think that this really is helping people to... Um, to be able to mitigate that this um, occurrence of pressure injuries. Um, so, Rod, anything you'd like to add to that? Not really. Just seems to me, and I always come from this from a different angle. You're medical people, and you understand things at a different level. I think, and I see the questions people are asking, and they're very specific about how to treat the wounds and all that sort of thing. I get the sense that the broader community doesn't think about health in that way. We think about it in different ways. And it seems to me that if you asked most people in the community, they would just accept that frailty is a part of getting older without realising 
what some of that, what that actually means to become frail and pressure. This is an eye opener for somebody like me. I think, oh yeah, you get old and frail. That's what happens. You don't think about these horrific stories that you've told Margot about pressure injuries and people being isolated in a room for 12 months. So there's something about messaging in there as well as the textbook and the incredible technology and research that people in your fields do for this stuff. There's something about making that work for people and real for people that's not related to the medicine, I don't think, but it is related to the outcomes. That's my feeling. So, uh, But it seems it's not a silver bullet, Mark, and probably not going to be one <laughs> invented in the next day or two. So uh, that, I think we're out of time, Fran, unfortunately. We could I go think on we are. Look, I'd really like to thank our panellists today, Margot Asimus, who has absolutely spectacular knowledge of pressure injury. I mean, we didn't really even get to the um, nuts and bolts of why she was invited along. Margot actually um, had a pressure injury prevention program in the Hunter New England area where they got the pressure injury occurrence down staggeringly and and modelled it that they would have saved over half a million dollars. And then we have Mark, who's really piqued my interest with the fact that he can do exercise and have biscuits afterwards. (laughs) But, you know, I joke, but I think, Mark, you've made some really good points about um, how we need to maintain our robustness. And I think actually the story of the person who did this through um, the advice that you gave them and taking the exercise in the way that they wanted to is really important. So um, I think we can really see by talking to you you guys that there's a multidisciplinary approach to all of these things. Technology is always on the horizon. And I'd just like to say thank you so much for such an interesting and I think slightly left of field discussion about pressure injuries. No, thank you. Thank you for the invitation and thank you to Combatech. Not at all, Margot. You might have Great, thank yourself. you, Tom. Yeah. Thank Thanks you for a lot. Me. Fabulous. And that's it for this episode of The Wound Doctors, which will be released as a podcast at some point in the next couple of weeks. So if you've got someone who you think should have listened and wasn't here today, they'll be able to do so in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everybody. Really appreciate you coming along.